one of the life-changing moments was when I failed. It forced me to think about what I really, really wanted to do rather than what other people wanted me to do. That action of going part-time in 2007 just released huge amounts of thoughts to my mind. Welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. In this episode, the founder of Workle, Mark Price, sits down with Richard Lanyon-Hogg, who has been recognised by TimeWise, the flexible working consultancy, and their power list. The power list celebrates some of the UK's most senior level executives who achieve everything they do working four days a week or less. The power list aims to prove that part-time can mean senior, can mean ambitious, can even mean being the boss. Now in its 10th year, TimeWise is taking fresh nominations for its up-and-coming 2022 list. His career saw him work for IBM for over 20 years, becoming Chief Technical Officer. And today, Richard is a visiting professor at the University of Sheffield and is an advisor to the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre Factory 2050. Mark starts the conversation by finding out what Richard's interests were at school. So Richard, you've had an amazingly successful career as a CTO with a huge company like IBM. You've then gone on to do some remarkably different, different things. Let's just go back to your school days. What do you remember about the school days? And did you ever think that you would end up um, uh, being so successful in the world of technology? I think for me, um, when I sort of reflect upon my education in my early years, it was completely uh, unremarkable. Um, I was fortunate in being able to go to um, uh, a new comprehensive school, which had some uh, very energetic and enthusiastic teachers, which cajoled you in actually sort of examining yourself and testing yourself. Um, but I sort of came through the other side. I would describe as myself as not being absolutely sure as to what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. But I think at the time in the mid seventies, the opportunities which were presented before people were ones where there were opportunities if, this, if you felt your skills were in your head or in your hands or in your heart. And it wasn't frowned upon to actually just go and explore and, as it were, flit between organisations or entities, whether it was the public and private sector. And so there was a, a number of roles which I undertook, and it was just completely by chance that actually I, I fell into the world of IT. Um, it's a rather bizarre thing to say, but the very first time I saw a computer, it was an ICL 2903 at WH Smith's. I just knew it was just, <laughs> I just knew that was it. There was something about that sort of world of, 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 of logic. And it was, as, as it was in, in the seventies, it was the, you know, the white head top, white uh, hot technology uh, across many a society, actually the, you know, the, 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 the beginnings of, uh, computer uh, automation and um, you know at school I had a, a sort of a natural bent towards uh, the technical sides of, uh, of learning rather than anything else and um, it was it was like the shoe fit and, and, and that was it. Tell us about it, joining think... IBM because IBM obviously a well a huge absolutely huge American business so uh, how did it come about you joined IBM? I mean IBM actually was the, the sort of the latest stages of my uh, uh, career in computing because um, initially I worked for uh, a number of organizations which uh, were very inc incredibly generous in giving me the opportunities to learn operations and to, and to learn programming 
Uh, and I ended up uh, working for uh, a British computer company called uh, uh, CMC, Computer Machinery Company, based in Hemel Hempstead. And they were very quickly taken over by uh, an American company called Microdata Information Systems. At, at the time, we were a, a huge supplier of IT systems to the government. And so it gave me a, an accelerated exposure to uh, technical consulting. And then we got bought, got bought out by McDonnell Douglas. And it was, it was that era of computing where companies were just buying companies, we're just buying companies. And um, once again, I, we got, uh, I got involved with another American company called Convergent Technologies on the, on the, uh, on, on the West Coast. And again, there was, the, there was this just con continual revolution. And I think uh, in IT, and I think because I had a passion for technology and I had a leaning towards a sort of a technical vocation, it was just absolutely perfect. But it was also, as we went into the 80s, it was that era of a climate where people were encouraged to have a go by themselves, uh, to actually be entrepreneurs. And so it was at that point I uh, decided to, uh, with a group of like-minded people, uh, uh, have a go by myself. We set up a group of companies and we ended up soon doing some amazing things. In fact, we developed for Apple, there was a little known company at the time called Apple Computers, and we developed their first uh, British uh, telecom approved fax solution. So from uh, any Mac, you could send and receive faxes. And at the time it was absolutely jaw dropping technology. And we won the, the, the Mac user of the year award. And it just, it just, I think for us at that time, it just confirmed that if you were prepared to just have a go and you were prepared to take a risk, then, you know, more often than not, an opportunity would present itself and uh, you can then just begin to sort of step on and move up. So we built a, a, a group of companies. We then uh, uh, sold those off and uh, I ended up working for uh, an organization that got bought out by um, Microsoft. So <laughs> and I had the opportunity to, to go and work for them uh, on the West Coast. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes I think that was perhaps um, a decision I should have taken, but um, I, I decided to, to stay um, here in the UK uh, because I felt the family needed to have some uh, stability rather than this continual moving around the world. And that, that's when I joined IBM. But on joining IBM, I think what I offered IBM was rather than just the, the classical route of somebody who'd been within an organization had slowly moved up because I'd actually worked for a number of American companies because I'd actually been built a, a group of businesses and actually sold them on and had delivered uh, significant products to, to other tech companies. It, it gave them what they were looking for, which was trying to move a business which was very sluggish into one which was much more dynamic. Did you find a big difference between British and American companies, tech companies? Oh yeah, 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 huge, huge. I mean, back in the back in the eighties. I mean, even uh, as you know, as recently as sort of 10, 10 years ago. I mean, America certainly. What American companies drilled into you was it, it's all about um, business performance. It's all about uh, you know signings, revenue, profit, uh, pre-tax income. It, it it is all about being immensely competitive in the sense of understanding your market, understanding your competitors, understanding your, your, your client and delivering excellence. And that, that was drilled into you. And, and I think with, the, with, with British companies, what I found was 
working for them was that they actually tended to be much more innovative, much more open, but sometimes they were not as ruthless as American companies um, were. That, that, was my, that was my experience anyway. Um, and I think it's a great shame in a way, because when I look back, Mark, and I think about, I, I did, when I retired from IBM, I did a six month stint at Bletchley Park, working at the, the National Museum of Computing. And uh, in, in, I think it's Hut 22, which is not open to the, uh, the, the public. Uh, if you go in that hut, it's, it's just this, this Aladdin's cave of the IT industry, of boxes which go back to the 1960. And as you walk along, Mark, you see British company name after British company name after British company name. And sadly, they're no longer with us, these companies, because they've been, they've been bought out. And I think it's, it, it is a shame that actually we do have in this country some phenomenally um, innovative people, some incredible uh, inventive minds as well. We're very good at this sort of the corner shop of, of IT, but we tend to just fail when we try to, 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 to kick on. Uh, that, that's my experience anyway, which is a great shame. And, and then tell us about your, your IBM experience. You were there for a, a, a long time. You became CTO. And then the bit we'll really get on to is that you decided that you wanted to work part-time. But before we talk about that, what led you to that decision? Just tell us a little about your, your, um, your long career at IBM. In fact, when I started at IBM, they just fired up the, the IBM Global Services Division. And IBM was uh, moving on from being uh, a supplier of uh, hardware and software to one of being uh, what they described as being a soup to, soup to nuts organization. They, so they wanted to be the one-stop shop. So to be able to provide, answer the question, which is, you know, you go to a client and the question might be, well, you know, well, what should I do? Well, that's that, you know, they wanted that consulting capability to answer that question. Well, the next question might be, well, what's the solution going to look like? Well, that's really being able to provide the architectural skills to describe what that solution is going to be. And then another, you know, this, the follow on question, well, what, you know, how's it all going to work? And that's where the specialists came in. So IBM wanted to move to be able to answer all of those questions and provide the products and services uh, along the way. So I was part of the, um, uh, the, the network and systems management team. So uh, basically how all the bits and pieces were sort of connected together and would uh, uh, interact with one another and my role was to be a, a technical consultant within that team but very quickly I was actually uh, then running a team and then I ended up running the the Microsoft services uh, team within IBM UK uh, and then from that I then uh, was given the uh, the task of running what would they call the emerging business opportunity team so this IBM had been working with uh, a number of outside organizations again trying to understand how it could accelerate innovation and I was given that role because of my background, having built a business and sold a business and being a proven entrepreneur, that they, they wanted somebody to run this uh, uh, emerging business opportunities program in the UK. And so I, I, I was tasked with having a, a, a not inconsiderable size team looking at Horizon 2 technologies. You know, how, how can we how we how can we materialize and monetize things like um, RFID and wireless and interactive TV and smart card technology and what have you. And we were doing this, you know, long before it was, uh, uh, you know, commercially business as, as business as usual. So we did some amazing things with clients, and, um, whether it was in the retail sector, the banking sector, uh, automotive sector, and, and what have you. Um, and that's that. That was, in a way, that sort of role was one of taking the the skills which I'd acquired. 
and, and, and forged outside IBM and actually was applying it within the IBM framework. They, they had within IBM what was called the um, uh, top talent program. And so IBM all the time was sort of looking for uh, technical leaders to uh, drive further forward its organization. It's, and on the sales side, they had a, a similar program as well to, to drive the commercial aspects of the business. Um, and I was identified, fortunately, as one of those people. And in fact, in fact, one of the life-changing moments was when I failed uh, to secure corporate support to become what was called, I mean, eventually I did become an IBM Distinguished Engineer, but the first time around I failed. And that was, that, I think that was one of the bigger turning points in my career, actually, because through that failure, it forced me to think about what I really, really wanted to do rather than what other people wanted me to do. And that's when I turned to what at the time uh, we, we called the green agenda. I started, so I started to sort of reorientate my thinking around uh, how could we make uh, IT much more sustainable? Uh, because I was convinced, I was, I was sure at the time, uh, and that, uh, that, that came through as confirmation over many years that actually IT has a, a, a huge impact on the sustainability of our, our, of our lives. Um, and so from that, um, uh, I, I did a number of green programs within, um, within IBM. I got further recognition uh, when a number of awards became, was appointed by the corporation uh, uh, as a distinguished engineer and moved from being the chief technology officer to being the, uh, an executive technical director uh, for, the, for the UK. But um, before that, I'd actually already started that journey to go uh, part-time because in 2005, I bought a wood because I knew there was something, there was something I wanted to, there was something about that that was, that was calling me. Um, but, and a couple of years later, I decided I've got to go part-time. I've got to create that space. I think the key word is, is time. My crystal ball is no better than your crystal ball, is no better than anybody else's crystal ball. And the problem is with time is we just don't know how much quality time which we've got before us. We, we don't know the timing nor the manner of our demise, but it, it is inevitable. And the thing that I was, I was struggling with back then was, was that, and I was thinking there must be a way in which you can, how can you pull forward possible quality time? How can you bring that into the present? That was one of the, the bigger catalysts of actually becoming part-time because I and, wanted and to pull forward that quality time or that possible quality time. When did that idea come to you? I mean, what? I mean, you talked about you know woodland and buying wood, but what what year was that, Richard? Well, the, I bought the wood in two thousand and five, and I went part time in two thousand and seven. I mean, it was it was uh, there's it was a big struggle actually from two thousand and five to two thousand and seven. It was a struggle because the thing is, you're, you're fighting a lot of demons within yourself because the thing is, is you're trying to grow your career within a business, even though you might be, you feel very confident about your skills and your abilities and the experiences and the value which you brought to the clients which you serve and the, and the teams which you lead and you, you work with. There is this sort of nagging fear that actually if I go part-time, will I then slip back into the, uh, into the shadows of the organisation? Will I become that sort of, oh, well, he only works part-time, so, you know, we won't, uh, you know, we won't thrust him forward into new opportunities and what have you. I think for people who because I remember coaching a number of people to actually go part-time after I'd gone part-time. And it's, it, you've got to sort of think about, um, you know, what are your values? You know, I, mean, I think the, 
you know, the greatest gift um, is actually that unselfish giving of, of one to another. But one of the greatest traps which you can fall into with all of this is thinking that a sort of appearances are the only true currency. And I saw, I saw, you know, I saw people, uh, Mark, who were more concerned about their appearances in the sense of, you know, look at the home which I've got, look at the cars which I've got, look at the ponies I've got in the paddock, look at the boat which I've got on the Solent and all the rest of it. And in all of this, I think their true selves were being lost. And I just thought, hang on a moment, you know, this is, this is, there is more than this. And I can actually, um, I, I need to give myself permission to have the time to do nothing. Because I think it's important at times through doing, it's actually through doing nothing, Mark, that you allow the mind to, to work and to make connections. And that action of going part-time in 2007 just released huge amounts of thoughts to my mind and all manner of things sort of developed from that. And Richard, tell me, how, how did the conversation go with IBF when you went and you said, I'd like to go part-time? Well, it ranged on uh, your brave to, you do realise this is the end of your career, uh, to how can you possibly afford to, to do that, uh, to a group of people saying, I see where you're coming from, have a go. But don't be afraid if you, if you, if you sort of have to backtrack from that. So you, you have to remember that in 2007, in, in leading, actually, because the conversations began sort of 2006 or 2007, the, whilst there was the sort of the, the support within certain organisations, uh, or rather there was that communication, that part-time working was supported, I wouldn't say it was actually part of the DNA of the business. And so therefore you're actually fighting against a mode of work, a pattern of working. And so, you know, you, you have to take some of the comments which uh, people dish out on your chin. But the thing is, you've just got to believe in it. You've got to believe in yourself and you've got to just go for it. And was it easy to negotiate or not? I mean, did you have to fight quite hard to go part time? Or did uh, people instantly say, no, that's fine. We're happy to do that. I mean, there were, there were a number of executives which weren't, um, um, I wouldn't say they were hostile, but I remember at the time I had to, I had to be firm and I had to say, look, you know, it's going to happen, period. We're going to make it happen. Richard, can you say something about the way that you adapted to work part-time? I mean, initially, when you go to work part-time, it is sort of rather strange because you have to remember that, you, you know, having spent several decades of throwing yourself out in the morning, whether it's onto a train or an aeroplane or in a car or what have you, you, you do feel um, that, that that's a sort of an alien feeling that you don't have to do that. Um, and I'd, um, um, it, it was difficult, but, but you, you, so you have these sort of gremlins that are sort of dancing around your shoulders all the time. And these, these gremlins are, are sort of trying to call you back to your old self, to your old way of being. Um, and and you, you have to sort of, you have to see them for what they are and you have to just begin to sort of re resist the, 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 the pressure they have on you. And actually, and I'm, I'm, I don't know who said it, but it is so true. Actually, just stopping, giving yourself permission to stop doing what you were doing, to allow the thoughts which you have in your mind just to be, begin to settle and for new connections to be made is an incredibly difficult thing to do. 
because we are, and this is what I said right at the, the outset about, I think one of the, I think one of the benefits I've had is not having, uh, is actually having an underwhelming education because I haven't been so conditioned to behave and perform in a particular way. And so when you actually start to go part-time, you've got these, these, these inner uh, tensions, these inner conflicts that continue to rise in your mind. And it's very easy to allow yourself to be pulled into an old direction. And it's just stopping yourself doing that. That's, that's the most difficult thing. And that's the thing I struggle with. And I'd find myself now and again, because I used to say Friday's my time. And I'd, you know, somebody, uh, you know, another exec would say, oh, well, you know, Richard, I need you on. We've got this call coming up with so-and-so on, on a Friday. You know, would you mind just dropping into the call for 15 minutes? And you sort of, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and initially you'd find yourself, okay, okay, you know, I'll help out the business, I'll, I'll do that call. The problem is there's no such thing as 15 minutes because as soon as you, you've got to prepare for that call, you've got to psych yourself up for that call. You then do the call and then you've got to wind down afterwards. So 15 minutes is actually half a day. Well, actually you've lost the day. And so you, you begin to recognize that actually you're being a bit of a patsy in all of this. So you need to sort of stop that and you need to be firmer and say, no, 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 this is my time. This is me time. This is for me to focus on what I need to actually focus on, whether that's doing nothing or actually exploring these new areas. And, and do you have any practical tips for people who are going to move to, to more part-time working? I remember somebody telling me about the dot and two circles rule. And that is, if, imagine if you open up the palm of your hand, and you put a dot in the middle of the palm of your hand, actually, that's all you can control. If you put a circle around that dot, the, the gap between the dot and that first circle is really all you can influence. And then if you put a further circle outside that circle, that's what's called the circle of concern. And the thing is, I think when you go part-time, is to not be trapped into this area of concern might have some sort of uh, uh, acknowledgement to influence, but just focus on what it is you can actually can control, because otherwise you'll just be thrown all over the place. Good advice. And Richard, obviously you went part-time to have more time to do other things that are of interest uh, to you. So, so talk us through that. How have you spent that extra time that you've won for yourself? I mean, in terms of what's happened over the last few years, in fact, since... I was part of the uh, the power part timers in 2013. I mean, a lot's happened. I mean, I, I've um, we've planted thousands of more uh, saplings in our woodland. We've uh, designed and built an off grid um, eco shed. We've uh, continually battled with the challenges of generating electricity when there's no wind and there's severe cloud coverage. Um, we've figured out ways in which we can sustainably uh, sterilized water for, for, for consumption. I uh, went away and designed some hardware for a project called the Internet of Trees because I was, uh, I'm was i sort of very conscious that a lot of people have apps on their phones that tell them what the weather is or what their health is or what have you. Um, and um, I was just wondering, well, is there any way in which you can use technology in a sustainable way to tell me how does my woodland feel today? And I know that's a, a qualitative question rather than a quantitative one, but um, trees do have feelings. I mean, scientists have proven that. 
And so I designed uh, hardware, had it manufactured overseas, uh, did some um, tests with the, uh, the, uh, the Forestry Commission and the Smallwoods Association, uh, opening up data channels for citizen scientists to take live data from oak trees and, and uh, ash trees. Um, I then released all of that uh, design uh, in an open source format to, to the communities to then actually take that forward themselves. Uh, I've looked at uh, using 4K drone photography to monitor woodlands and thinking about how you build training sets using uh, AI modules and what have you. So I, I've, I've done all manner of things uh, around the woodland which have involved both hands-on and as well as technology. And I've morphed it into other things. I now do, um, uh, I now make willow coffins for the, the homeless. Um, and and I, I do that because, um, well, there's a, not only is there a need, but again, it's sort of, it, it's, and, and that came through just allowing my mind to be free by not being cluttered by this, 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 this corporate existence, by being able to explore a thought and a, and a feeling and then transpose that into materials, being able to use my head and my hands. And what I found is that there's a, there's a, there's a resonance between that and bell ringing because it's all, and that goes back to, I think what I used to enjoy at school with technical drawings about patterns. It's about seeing, uh, creating some order from, from some chaos. So there are some very sort of loose links through all of this, um, which I found personally incredibly rewarding. And I would not have been able to do that had I not gone in 2007 part-time. And, and Richard, would you say that you're happier at work now, working in your new flexible way than you were all those years ago? Yes, I'm happier because if I'd come to this point, I think, you know, if I was having, coming to this point in my life, at least I've had the opportunity to, um, uh, and I've been incredibly fortunate in having that opportunity to, um, experience the highs of working within a corporation, but also to experience, um, to, to have the opportunity to uh, explore uh, various personal avenues and to link those, uh, you know, taking, taking the lessons which I've learned from those avenues and apply them back into the business world. Um, if I just continued uh, in 2007, if I hadn't bought the wood in 2005 and I hadn't gone part-time in 2007, um, yes, I would be, uh, uh, you know, if I'd stayed in the full time in the corporate environment, I'd be um, uh, a, a wealthier person, but I think I would be a much more poorer person for that. And, and tell me about the pandemic and how you think that um, maybe shifted people's mindsets about flexible working. When, when I look at the world of engineering and manufacturing, my personal take was that pre-pandemic there were many many an organization which were utilizing flexible ways of working rather than invest in technologies to actually maintain or to try and improve productivity levels and I think what what's my, my observations are that what's what's happened with the the pandemic is that companies can no longer ignore technology because they can't in certain situations work in a way in which they were working 
before with the various tasks within a within a procedures within the process within a, a, a an activity within a plant and so what we will see uh, over the coming uh, quarters and years is an acceleration in the adoption of technologies in the workplace um, it, in some respects that's good because it actually it creates uh, employment but I think it also in itself creates management challenges and the reason why I say that is this is that because when I was a director uh, at IBM uh, and I had people who I'd encouraged and became part-time workers one of the things I was aware of is you manage somebody who works in a part-time way I think somewhat slightly differently than you would a, a full-time employee the reason being is that I I I knew because of the, the, the concerns I had when I first went part-time and the feelings it created within me, that it would not be uh, unexpected to, to, for the people who were reporting into me and working with, alongside me to have those same feelings. And so you have to support them in a slightly different way. You have to make them feel part of, still part of that, that, that team. Um, and there's various things which you, which you can do, but it's, it's important that you're completely transparent and you communicate with them on a regular basis. And I think for some people, the stories which I've heard is that where management has not, through the COVID pandemic, has been, uh, have been as engaging as they sh should have been, using the examples of what we used to do pre-pandemic with part-time workers, it's led to uh, some of the workers becoming extremely, as I would, you know, frigid, fraught, you know, very anxious, you know, there's increasing levels of anxiety. Um, and that, that in itself creates uh, mental stresses and strains. And, you know, the mental well-being uh, of, of your team is absolutely paramount, absolutely paramount. So I think what will happen, uh, what I hope will happen as we come through this pandemic is that management and businesses generally just up their game in caring for their employees, whether they're full-time or whether they're part-time or flexi-working, because they're not going to be it, it, it sort of organised in a way much in, 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 uh, as they were before. Yeah, I, well, I think we would very much agree with you on, on that point, Richard. And, and Richard, can I thank you uh, for your time, but also can I thank you for being such an amazing role model? Um, when you went part-time 15-odd uh, years ago, only about one in, I think, uh, 10 of the people who were working part-time uh, were men. And you've set an amazing example in terms of um, how you've chosen to live your life and use your time profitably. And you've brought a real focus to uh, nature and sustainability, both of which we know are so, so important for um, the sustainability of the, the planet. So um, can I thank you for your time and for your insights? And I hope uh, for people listening to this podcast, inspiring them to think about how they use their time and what they get from it. Thank you, Richard. And thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.